This episode is brought to you in part by Zondervan, publisher of Think Ahead, seven decisions you can make today for the God-honoring life you want tomorrow. Written and narrated by Craig Groeschel and available everywhere audiobooks are sold. You're listening to Seeing and Believing, a film and television podcast that searches for the sacred on screen. I'm Kevin McLenathan. And I'm Sarah Welch-Larson. And Kevin, we've done it. We have returned from the wilds of a missing week. I don't know about this place that we've returned to. It's a nice mansion, there's a lot of glow sticks, but the party seems just a little bit too wild for me. Yeah, I don't know. Whatever game is going on here, I feel like the only way to win is not to play. I'm inclined to just turn back around and disappear back to the wilds from which we came. That might be a good idea, given that the name of the game is Bodies, 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 which also happens to be the title of the new release that we are reviewing, directed by Helena Ring. The title of the film that we're going to be reviewing for the Watchlist segment is Picnic at Hanging Rock, and I think that disappearing seems like a good option for us. So shall we into the woods then? Yes, let's go. That's coming up on episode 345 of Seeing and Believing. A wrinkle puss. You don't have to be nervous. I- I'm not nervous. Wow, they're all so impressive. You're impressive. They're going to be obsessed with you. They're not as nihilistic as they look on the internet. You guys, this is me. Oh. Whoa. Is this your first relationship? Oh, no. You just kind of give that vibe. So we're here on episode 345 of Seeing and Believing. We're back after uh, some unforeseen events uh, made us miss out on last week's recording session. Mm-hmm. Um, I was actually, I, you know, it was all my fault. I apologize. Um, don't Don't hurt me. I I won't hurt you. I feel like migraines probably hurt enough as is. Yeah, I, I don't know. I guess I'm feeling a little bit uh, uh, paranoid because you know of what the movie we're talking about today. So you know, it's that's just. Oh, see, I'm not supposed to reveal my murderous intent until at least the second act. So it will be all sunshine. At least at first. And then we'll see how the review goes. Maybe maybe the knives will come out then. Well, okay. Well, we can prolong the anxiety that way. (laughs) We are going to be talking about something a little bit less anxiety-inducing in the second half of the segment with Peter Weir's 1975 film Picnic at Hanging Rock. Mm -hmm. That's Sarah's pick for the watch list segment. Looking forward to that. But first, we're going to be talking about uh, a thriller that has been making a lot of waves lately. It's the latest movie from A24 called Bodies, Bodies, Bodies. Mm -hmm. So. That's quite a title for you. Bodies, Bodies, Bodies is Dutch filmmaker Helena Rain's thriller that asks, which is scarier, being stalked and picked off by one of the people in your friend group in a big dark house or being stuck in a big dark house with the people in your friend group in the first place? <laughs> Among the film stars are Maria Bakalova, Amanda Stenberg, Rachel Sinnott, and Pete Davidson as the horrible Gen Zers who hole up together during a hurricane only to find themselves being picked off one by one by a mysterious killer. Oh, and also Lee Pace is there as a middle-aged arm candy who's just along for the ride. (laughs) Which one of them is the killer? Why are they being killed in the first place? Are there, in fact, worse fates than death in that house? Maybe that third question is a good starting point for our discussion, Sarah. You know, you this is a film that definitely tries to get a lot of mileage out of uh, its cast of characters being slightly too very unlikable. So... Let's throw that question to you to get us started. Are there, in fact, worse fates than death in the house of bodies, bodies, bodies? Honestly, it might be being a guest on character Alice, played by Rachel Sennett. It might be being a guest on her podcast, potentially, (laughs) at least judging by the way all of the other characters react to the fact that she has a podcast in the first place. I don't know. Between um, Shiva Baby... And Bodies, 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 I think Rachel Sennett in particular, is two for two on incredible performances of characters I hope never to be trapped in a room with. (laughs) Um, I don't know. Like, I I was kind of happy to be trapped in this particular house. I, I, for one, kind of enjoyed the experience of watching all of these people be horrible to each other. And I can't quite put my finger on it. 
it might be because the movie is billed as sort of a horror comedy, but I didn't really get a ton of the horror vibe. I got more of the comedy vibe from that. So I don't know. Did did you get that same feeling while you were watching it? Oh, this is this is absolutely. I mean, it's only a horror film in the sense that there is some violence in it and people die in it, but mm-hmm. it's definitely not interested in scaring the audience. It's much more interested in giving you a portrait of a certain kind of person and uh, allowing the fact that they're in this extreme situation to draw out certain emphases in their characters for our amusement and perhaps edification about what kind of society we find ourselves in in Mm. the year 2022. Um, I think that it it is funny uh to up to a point i think for me personally and mm-hmm. i'm interested to get your thoughts on on this as well but for me personally the humor wore thin after a while after i kind of realized what the film was up to mm-hmm. and i didn't think that for me uh director helena rain and uh writer sarah delap weren't the they don't ever, for me, evolve the the concept beyond a certain point. So for, I felt like the film was kind of in second gear for a lot of the time, and I wanted it to mm-hmm. upshift into a higher gear, and it never really quite got there for me. So I was more amused rather than laughing out loud, if the distinction makes sense. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that tracks. Amused is probably the right word for it. I think I appreciated this movie a little bit more than you did. I didn't really get the... It's in second gear and it's trying to get to another level. I think it was kind of operating at the same level throughout the entire movie and just tightening the screws just a little bit, just a little bit with every single interaction between all of these terrible people and their motivations. And with the added stress of maybe there's a killer out there who's trying to get them. And for me, that worked kind of as a portrait of just being a young person on the Internet where you put yourself out there. Maybe your motivations aren't necessarily the greatest. Maybe they're just in service of, I want to put myself out there so that other people will pay attention to me. And then in so doing, the attention that that attracts can sometimes be not necessarily the greatest. If It kind of felt a little bit like a, a more relaxed internet mob coming after somebody on Twitter um, was how just the general conflict of this entire movie felt. And for me, that worked because it actually felt a little bit less stressful than that. It it was a nice metaphor, I think, for being online and being a terrible person online and then sort of reaping the consequences of being a terrible person online or reaping reaping the consequences of being someone online and not necessarily even deserving the outcomes of that, if that makes any sense at all. I it does make sense. I do think that the film's strength is that it is genuinely – it's very good at crystallizing a very particular mode of behavior uh, mm. that um, somebody who spends tons of time on the internet kind of immersed in the sorts of social media discourse <laughs> that proliferates on there – what kind of what kind of brain uh what that does to a brain mm-hmm. <laughs> um the it's it's fun to watch some of these these characters sort of jockey around uh be passive aggressive towards each other but passive aggressive in a way that it doesn't it's it's not it's this ain't your daddy's passive aggression i guess <laughs> like they're uh the the ways in which uh s- social status is tied not to necessarily traditional markers like wealth and class, but almost the inversion of that. Like how much can you brag about, uh, you know, being from a privileged background, but uh, rejecting that privilege or working against that privilege, subverting it somehow. Mm. That's the real status marker for this group of friends Mm -hmm. and how successful they are doing that is uh, very fertile territory for you know li- subtle digs and knives in the ribs and perhaps even literally, and that I think is th- the film is very smart about that. Mm-hmm. I kind of found myself wishing that after 
evoking that personality type for each of these characters, it found a way to sort of unfold it into more than just sort of a a very clear echo of that. It, it, it felt like it was good at making me have recognize, oh, I've seen that person in mm-hmm. the wild. It didn't really succeed in making me happy to be spending a, an entire movie with those characters, if that makes sense. Mm, I think that makes sense. Um, what works for me about this is the movie's smart about drawing those lines and the relationships between these characters and the fact that their status is based on a certain level of self-consciousness and the characters who are probably like the least self-conscious are clearly the ones who are at the bottom of the heap and may not even necessarily know it. Talking about Rachel Sennett's Alice in particular, like she tends to chime into the conversations just a little bit too late and she seems to be a little bit too clueless about what exactly is going on. And even after people start turning up dead, she starts wearing more and more of these glow stick necklaces, almost like she's putting a target on herself, even though she's not aware of it. She's just putting these on so that she can see her way around this dark house with no power. But at the same time, she's also marking herself as kind of a little bit clueless and a little bit unaware. And I think watching those threads get detangled as the movie wore on and watching these characters slowly come to consciousness of we're in trouble and we've gotten ourselves in trouble and then watching them try to dig their way out of it by shifting that blame onto somebody else who might be less conscious or less privileged than they are. That as, as a level of satire really did work for me. Mm, I, the satire's there. I, for me, it, it felt like at a certain point, the movie started working in service of the satire rather than the other way around. And mm-hmm. I kind of I wanted the the satire to sort of feel like um, a an integral ingredient of the story rather than just the entire meal. Mm-hmm. Uh, and there's a late film confrontation between the the remaining friends. So at this point, a few of them have already been offed, mm-hmm. and so there's this lengthy. Uh, shouting match among all of them where they kind of uh, go around in a circle and just fling uh, mutual recriminations at each other. And it it keeps heightening and heightening to the point where they're, you know, accusing each other of having a bad podcast or pretending like they're poor, but they're really upper middle class. And that's just the worst possible thing you could say. Mm -hmm. And as the, the scene goes on and on, it begins to feel like, oh, I feel like I'm watching the writer, the screenwriter amuse themselves, Hmm. but I'm getting farther and farther away from caring about anything that's occurring in the story in front of me. Hmm. And that's kind of for me where I felt like the, the film kind of went from being a neat genre picture with a, with a nice satirical bent to basically just being a think piece (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> that is all about how millennials slash Zoomers are just horrible, self-absorbed people. Hmm. Which, I mean, not to say that the observations that are being made in this movie are unjust, because <laughs> mm-hmm. I do think that it's very good at crystallizing that. I just kind of wish there had been something more beyond that, and I just didn't find that here. Huh. So that confrontation, I will grant you the lines are particularly on the nose, especially when one character literally shouts at another one, you're triggering me. Um, yeah, like that. That yeah. It didn't work for you? Yeah. yeah, I mean, I cringed when I heard it. And I think part of it was because the line is on the nose, but part of it is also that's kind of what being part of an internet mob, like with everybody all fired up and trying to prove themselves as I am the one who is right and everybody else in this circle of mentions is completely wrong. That felt so true that I don't think I needed the movie to say anything more because it felt like a a personification or like making that kind of a situation into something that is actually physically happening. I think it's easy to say that conflict on the internet isn't a real thing because it's over on the internet and you can just log off and say that that's not real. But those conflicts are real and they do exist and they're between real people, even if the people who are undergoing those arguments and conflicts have lost sight of each other's humanity on the other side of that screen, if that makes sense. Mm -hmm. And I think for this, yes, it's on the 
knows. But so is real life. <laughs> well, okay. So you said something there that, that I think you, you mentioned that you didn't want it to say anything more after that triggering line mm-hmm. because it was so on the nose. And I think um, that might be where, where we agree is I kind of wanted to say a good deal less. I think the first half of this film mm-hmm. where it does kind of have that same sort of feel where Rachel Sinnott's Alice will sort of say, oh, but that's a good thing after she says something that's very subtly condescending or cutting uh, or, or when another character brings up a, 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 a friend's past with substance abuse and just sort of doesn't condemn it because, you know, we don't condemn here. That's not what these characters are about. They're very tolerant. Yeah. But um, they the fact that they bring it up at all is very much an intentional dig. I, I found the subtlety of those scenes to actually be really refreshing because I'm like, okay, I see what you're up to. And I've obviously I've I've seen that happen online. Mm-hmm. It's very true to life. I don't need you to keep gilding the lily. And as the film went on, it basically felt like it was just gilding the lily so much that the lily sort of disappeared behind all the gilding. <laughs> Isn't that the, kind of the point of the movie, though, is that we're going to keep gilding the lily in our lives online until all of that meaningfulness does eventually disappear because we can't see past ourselves and past our screens? Yeah, in, in theory, yes. Um, I think that I wanted this movie to be good in actuality, not just in theory. <laughs> Like there, and again, I feel like that's a, a big thing. A big tar- satirical target of this film is the way that characters can use irony and um, and uh, sarcasm to sort of distance themselves from responsibility. So though Pete Davidson's character is obviously uh, very jealous of Lee Pace's character mm-hmm. uh, being there, and so he's constantly doing everything he can to um to embarrass Lee Pace's character to uh make him to to catch him out to make him look bad mm-hmm. and then he sort of tries to step back like oh you know I'm just I'm just playing around it, mm-hmm. you know it's all just a joke and that's a very well-worn trick in uh in internet discourse is sort of Making it uncl- making it ambiguous, or at least leaving enough plausible deniability to to for it to be unclear just how serious you're being, and therefore you can evade any sort of accountability. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that that's that's great in moderation. I I don't want to. It feels like at a certain point this film might be kind of trying to duck the same sort of accountability. Like, how seriously am I supposed to actually c- take? these characters Hmm. are they simply you know cardboard stand-ups for everything we hate about gen z or are they actual people uh who you know are meant to be approached as people Mm -hmm. (laughs) and and i i felt like as the film went on it it kind of felt began to edge more and more over to the wrong side of that line where where it's like yeah it's it's amusing to sort of vent about how much we don't like Twitter brain, hmm. but you need to give me something else besides just isn't Twitter brain annoying? Hmm. If that does that am I kind of explaining myself there, I guess? Yeah, you're explaining yourself. I get your dissatisfaction. I think that there's a line fairly early on in the movie that sort of worked for me in detangling what's going on in the back half. So um as they're approaching this house party, Amanda Stenberg's Sophie tells Maria Bakalova's B, um, they might be intimidating, but they're not as nihilistic as they appear to be on the internet. And so I think a lot of what this movie is doing is trying to like take those facades down and see if there is anything underneath those facades. And in this case, for the most part, most of these characters, that's not really necessarily true. And I think that that's... It's not okay that it's true, but I do think that it says something about the willingness to bury your own humanity underneath um, a layer of insincerity or vapidity and what that does to a person. The horror here isn't that these characters are tearing each other apart. I think that that's a side effect 
hmm. of these characters being willing to bury their own humanity and then to deny the humanity of everybody else around them because it's all kind of a one-upping um, game of, of trying to prove your status by not explicitly proving your status. Okay. That's that's an interesting that's an interesting defense. I'm I'm open to that. As you're as you were talking, I was kind of I was thinking about what I just said, about, and I'm thinking about something like Doctor Strangelove, which is also not particularly subtle mm-hmm. in in its satire. And I'm I, I think Doctor Strangelove is great. I, it it gets greater every time I watch it. Wade and I talked about it on the show a while back during our summer of Stan, where we talked about a bunch of Kubrick films, and I rewatched it for that, and I was just. It, it just keeps getting better. And I'm I'm wondering why can I watch something like Doctor Strangelove and just even though it's, you know, <laughs> there are characters with la- the last name Mandrake and, you know, the our precious bodily fluids, it's not subtle in the slightest. And yet I think Strangelove is a masterpiece and Bodies, Bodies, Bodies is just sort of fine. And I'm I'm trying to sort out for myself what the difference is. I'm and I'm not sure if I have a good answer for that yet. So you won't hear any arguments from me about Doctor Strange Love being a great movie because it is a great movie. So we're in agreement there at the very least. Um is it maybe because Doctor Strange Love isn't aimed at people who are like adjacent to our own generation maybe? Like does Bodies 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 cut a little closer to the quick or is it just a tone thing? Because tonally these two movies are pretty different. I don't know. It maybe it might just be because I think Strangelove's jokes are funnier. I feel like a lot of the humor in Bodies, Bodies, Bodies consists mostly of recreating a person that we all kind of recognize, but not really elaborating on that or transmuting it in a way that surprises me. I'm not surprised by any of these characters. I've seen them on Twitter. It takes talent to be so good at sketching out that kind of person so clearly. Mm-hmm. I mean, the the story for this was uh, come up with by Kristen Rupinian, who wrote the short story Cat Person mm-hmm. for The New Yorker, which is very famously good at crystallizing a very specific kind of bad experience. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I definitely see those fingerprints in this film as well, where... I think both that short story and this story do have the same sort of approach where they crystallize so well in in the details, in the dialogue, um, a specific sort of person or specific sort of experience. But after I finish it, I feel like I kind of just, I got mimicry, but I didn't really get anything to chew on Hmm. once I kind of finished having that shock of recognition. So what you're saying is this movie is the equivalent of making up a person to get mad about on the internet, which is one of my favorite Twitter memes. It's just, I made up this person so I can be mad about them. I mean, maybe. I I, I don't think that these are... I, because it's not invented out whole cloth because I have I have seen people... there. Okay, so there's a moment in that big confrontation I was talking about where one character uh, who is white is uh, arguing with another character who is black. Mm-hmm. And the the character who is black um, says, you know, are you going to really criticize me? You're, you're, you're a white person criticizing a black person about how they should feel. Mm-hmm. And the, the white person's response is just sort of, <laughs> she's helpless in the face of that comeback. Mm-hmm. And that's the sort of, um, that kind of choked frustration is something you see a lot on Twitter where somebody feels like you've got something on me that I can't really beat. Mm, <laughs> like mm-hmm. you've got a status marker or at least a perceived status marker that I want to beat and I can't and it makes me mad. Mm. I I think that's really great that this film is able to crystallize that so neatly. Mm-hmm. Um, it's not just a fiction, but I think maybe that's kind of my problem with it is it's just it's a recreation but it doesn't do anything beyond just recreating and going like isn't this annoying when you see two people having this sort of argument Hmm. i mean i do think it's going a step beyond that though because it's not just saying isn't this annoying it's also sort of laying out the consequences of like the fallout of what happens there 
I will also grant you the ending of this movie. I don't feel like it quite stuck the landing, but I think that that also mirrors a lot of the dissatisfaction that I feel when I'm watching along the sidelines of an argument on the internet because I'm watching these two people go at it. I am also in that moment probably forgetting a little bit of their humanity on the other side of the screen the same way that they are doing to each other. And usually it just sort of peters out. People will block each other and they'll move on with their lives and then they'll get mad at each other again later on down the line. I mean, that is best case scenario for something like this. Like there can be much worse things that happen through disagreements on the Internet. But I think that this movie sort of peters out in sort of a similar way. And that's where I did feel dissatisfied was the level of mimicry kind of captures that feeling of, oh, there was this dust up. And now that's all there is. And then kind of feeling a little bit bad and gross about having enjoyed it at the same time. Did mm-hmm. you get that same feeling too? I, I mean, I think that that's really perceptive and might be a better articulation of my problems with film than I've gotten <laughs> this in this entire segment. The, the fact that I, I think an important ingredient of any movie about the internet is the act of watching, like the, the act of spectation, the, uh, you know, lurking on Twitter, watching a, an argument run out of control <laughs> or, you know, uh, having a sock puppet account where you can sort of like uh, be mean to somebody without anybody knowing it's you. Like that's something that uh, happens on the internet all the time. And I think that that might be something that's missing from from this film where we in the audience are sort of above these characters. We're looking down on them. Hmm. And I mean, I don't necessarily need a film like this to make me sympathize with these characters. I mean, I don't necessarily sympathize with any of the characters in Dr. Strangelove, Mm -hmm. but I feel like the way in which this film really just makes these, uh, these young people look petty and ridiculous and so annoying that you're kind of glad that they die in the way that you're glad that the characters and you're often glad that the characters in slasher films die Mm. like that's it's not disturbing it's dissatisfying for me though Mm -hmm. so you didn't even feel any sympathy for greg lee pace's character i mean i kind of did okay yeah i i i liked i liked him the most but he, the role is a small one, and mm-hmm. I could have used more more Lee Pace energy in this movie, maybe. I do appreciate the way that the movie makes use of him, because the movie is very aware of his how tall he is and of his physicality. Um, I could also just watch Lee Pace all day, honestly. So I, I do wish that we had gotten a little bit more of him. But the flashes of him that we do get in this movie are pretty brilliant. <laughs> I I agree. Listeners, that is our review of Bodies, Bodies, Bodies. It is currently in theaters. Uh, It's been getting uh, a lot of attention. It's in wide release, I believe. So if you've had Mm -hmm. a chance to see it and want to share your thoughts on it, do the uh, does the satire work for you? Uh, do the characters annoy you out of the theater or do they just regular annoy you? We want to hear your thoughts. Uh, you can always email us at seeingandbelievingcapc at gmail.com. If you want to dabble your toes in the website that shall not be named that has given rise to these uh, character types, you can also go on Twitter and tweet us at cbelievepod. We'd love to hear your thoughts. Don't go anywhere. We're going to be talking about Picnic Hanging Rock here in a minute. This episode is brought to you in part by Seattle's Union Gospel Mission. Over 13,000 people in the Seattle area are homeless. Kathy is one of many who found a new life through Seattle's Union Gospel Mission. Growing up, my dad and I didn't get along. I kept running away from home until one time I was assaulted. After that, I carried a lot of pain inside of me, and I was doing a lot of drugs. I became homeless. It's taken me almost 40 years to get the healing I needed. But all along, God was looking out for me. He led me to the mission, and the mission has helped me in all kinds of ways. I've learned how to set boundaries and say no. Now I'm looking forward to working for the mission. I want people to know there's hope out there. God can help you heal. And grace will Volunteer or donate, visit UGM.org. 
Welcome to The Conversation, the part of the show where we share what we've been hearing from all you listeners out there, keeping the conversation about movies going. I think one of the things I really like about hosting Seeing and Believing week in and week out and talking to our listeners is that they are the pretty much the exact opposite of the characters in Bodies, Bodies, Bodies. Yes. <laughs> um, I really enjoy hearing their thoughts every week. And we got some some responses on Twitter to our most recent poll. Yeah, I appreciate how thoughtful you all are and also that you're not trying to score points with us, um, which is something that I think can occasionally happen on film Twitter, but it doesn't <clears throat> feel like that at least in this particular little corner of film Twitter. So this past weekend, we asked the question, what's your favorite movie about a young person who's just trying to figure their life out? And we got a couple of responses. So Felix Rodriguez responded back with Lady Bird, which I think is an excellent choice. Yeah, so recently elsewhere on Twitter, uh, film spotting, uh, added... Adam Kempinar and Josh Larson had a uh, conversation going about uh, their A24 film draft. Like, which movies would they pick to be, like, the top 10 A24 films? And, of course, Lady Bird was definitely part of that discussion. I think was it was the, the first top of one that was picked. Yeah. Yeah, top, top of Josh's list. And, I mean... That's a very justifiable pick. It's a great movie. Mm-hmm. Yeah. We also got um, a slightly more off the beaten path answer from Justin Bauer, who said currently Dune. And that's it. Just currently Dune. I mean, what can be more, I you know, what can be more evocative of the I'm a teenager who has all of a sudden this whole world opening up in front of me and I have no idea how to deal with it than being the literal messiah. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I suppose so. Which <laughs> whomst among us has not felt for Paul Atreides feeling the weight of civilization on his shoulders We're getting, as a melodramatic 14-year-old. I mean, we are getting dangerously close into Bodies, Bodies, Bodies character territory here, <laughs> I think, anyway. Although, to be fair, my own personal pick would also be a teenager. It would just be Miles Morales in Spider-Man Into the Spider-Verse. Oh, okay. Not yeah. not a bad pick. I was... You know, I I didn't think about this too for too long before starting recording, but I think I might actually pick um, Joseph Gordon-Levitt's character from Brick. Oh, that's such a good pick. Yeah, Brick, like just the... Uh, I love Brick. We should talk about Brick sometime on the show. It's It's so great. And I mean, if there's another film that transposes the noir aesthetic... Uh, in a more unexpected and fantastic way than Brick, I'd like to see it because that would be a fantastic movie. Yeah, sign me up for that movie. And also sign me up for talking about Brick because Brick is wonderful. Indeed. We also heard from Ron Sturry, who responded with, my wife and I saw it when we were in college and many times since. And the it of that tweet is none other than The Graduate. I mean, that is, in a lot of ways, that might be the prototypical like teenager or, or I guess, young person trying to figure out his life. Mm-hmm. Like that is, I mean, no, no comments. That's a great pick. It was a pick I wasn't expecting. And then I heard it and I thought, that's perfect. It's one of the ones like you you don't necessarily think of it, and then, and then it seems so obvious once somebody picks it. So great pick, Ron. Uh, Ron also wrote us a, a really great dispatch about the Traverse City Film Festival. So, uh, and I, I think that uh, he's definitely uh, talked to to me about it before. You know, he's a longtime listener, and uh, I had the good fortune of being in Traverse City for summer vacation once upon a time. I missed the film festival by a week, mm. but Ron make sure, made sure to let me know, like, next time I'm in Traverse City, check it out for sure. Uh, he and his wife had a chance to uh, to see it for the 15th time. So that's quite a great streak for a film festival going. I mean, I personally would love to go to any film festival that many times um, and that many times in a row. Uh, that sounds wonderful, honestly. Yeah, well, Ron was was kind enough to to write us up a, a great dispatch over email. Um, I'm not gonna. It's it's. They saw a lot of films. So I'm not gonna be able to read the entire email on air. But he wanted to share some recommendations that they saw and loved from that film festival. Uh, they said the best film they saw was Gabby Gifford's Won't Back Down, a wonderful, inspiring film with the life struggles of Gabby Gifford, as well as the condemnation of gun violence. So that's a film I've heard of as well. I haven't had a chance to see it, obviously, but look, I'm sure it'll be making waves once it uh, becomes more widely available. That should be one that we should check out at some point. Uh, Ron also wanted to sing the praises of The Rebellious Life of Mrs. Rosa Parks. 
and Bad Axe, uh, both of them documentaries about uh, the first one about obviously Rosa Parks and the other Bad Axe about a Cambodian family in Michigan and their fight to keep their restaurant going in the face of the COVID pandemic. Uh, Ron goes on to mention a couple of, of other films that weren't the the best but he wants to wrap up by saying i know seeing and believing does not review documentaries have you ever and i think that is a shame and you know i when i read that sarah i was like wait a minute we've reviewed documentaries on the show and then you actually went back through the archives mm-hmm. and with your perspective as of being newer to the show you revealed that we actually haven't talked we haven't actually reviewed that many documentaries on the air. Yeah, I think uh, out of the 345 episodes, there were three that had to do with documentaries, um, mm-hmm. four documentaries reviewed total, but definitely not very many. And I think I personally like a lot of documentaries are things that I just haven't seen a ton of. So it would be great to dip our toes into those waters a little bit more. I personally have my eye on Fire of Love, which is supposed to be coming out on streaming fairly soon. It's in limited release right now. If you get the chance to see it on the big screen, definitely go see it. I had the chance to catch a screener on my TV at home, and it I don't feel like it quite did the imagery justice, but we'll have to talk about it when it comes out. We'll get that on the on the schedule for sure. Yeah, Wade and I, we, we talked about uh, documentaries like a lot of times during our year-end lists, but we don't actually spend a lot of time like sitting down and going on for uh, half, you know, half an hour or more about a documentary and really digging deep into it. So thanks, Ron, for, for pointing that out. We might uh, ameliorate that situation fairly soon, so keep listening. Um, Ron also wanted to share that he had to get out his recording of Buck and the Preacher after our watch list segment about that. So thanks for writing in, Ron, with all those thoughts. Loved getting that email. And if we ever find ourselves in in your neck of the woods in the summer when Traverse City Film Festival is going on, we'll look you up for sure. Definitely. And uh, if any of you other listeners have, have seen any great documentaries or otherwise, obviously our inbox is open. We love getting these sorts of recommendations. Mm-hmm. So uh, keep them coming. We love to hear from you all. So keep them coming. We love to hear from all of you. This episode is brought to you by Paramount+. Plus. Get in, loser! Mean Girls is now streaming on Paramount+. Plus. Join Katie Heron as she meets the plastics and Tina Fey's new twist on the modern classic. Get ready for more of the rumors, backstabbing, and jokes you loved from the original movie with some fetch surprises. Rated PG-13. Wear pink and head to ParamountPlus.com to try it free. Man. <laughs> Having a rough time tonight. Ugh. Shaking off the rust after a week off. Yeah, definitely. Sorry, Jonathan. All right. Picnic at Hanging Rock. <laughs> Sorry, Jonathan is like, I don't know, the litany or something. It's pretty great. <laughs> of seeing and believing. Okay. Segment two, Picnic at Hanging Rock. <clears throat> And now it's time for the watchlist segment. This is, of course, the part of the show where one host picks a film that the other host hasn't had a chance to see yet. We both watch it, we talk about it, and uh, just have hopefully a good time mm-hmm. uh, for both of us. So this week, Sarah picked Peter Weir's 1975 film Picnic at Hanging Rock. This is Peter Weir's ethereal mood piece about an unsolved mystery from the turn of the 20th century in Australia. The mystery involves the disappearance of three girls and one woman during an all-girls school outing in the Australian bush near the imposing rock formation that gives the movie its title. Naturally, much of the movie is given over to the question of what happened to the missing persons, but in Weir's hands, the mystery almost seems beside the point when compared with the dreamlike atmosphere he's building and his subtle explorations of, not to put too fine a point on it, the feminine mystique. So, (laughs) Sarah, this was your pick, like we mentioned. Mm -hmm. Uh, What was sort of the, as you were thinking about pairing it with bodies, 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 uh, what was the connection there that you were drawing? The the galaxy-brained four-dimensional chess connection, If you will. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) I do try to do those. Um, In this case, it's about a group of young women stranded in a distant location, maybe not a mansion, but it is a particularly large rock. And not all of them necessarily make it back in time afterwards. So kind of kind of plot wise, at least these two movies are similar. Structurally, I don't think you can get 
any further between either of these two. So I'm curious to know what you thought about them. I kind of loved this movie. I'll just come right out and say I loved Picnic at Hanging Rock. And I think the thing that I loved about it, I, I was on board almost from the very beginning. And so much of it has to do with just that atmosphere and mood that we're is building from the very start. It feels like, uh, I I, want to say a dream. It's, it's hard to describe exactly the effect this movie has on you because it's not dreamlike in the sense that, uh, illogical things keep happening or there's a surreality to it, but there's a gauziness, I guess, to everything that happens here that is very intentional. Uh, you know, we, the girls that the movie focuses on, they're, they're out there in the bush, uh, you know, roughing it, but they're in, you know, white muslin dresses and they're all, you know, speaking in these very soft voices, very delicate next to the craggy hanging rock that's hanging over all of them. Mm -hmm. And the way that Weir juxtaposes those two and uses the performances of his cast to just make you feel like you're you're floating in a cloud of femininity i guess i I, again i'm i'm struggling to find words put to the experience and i think maybe that's why this is such a great movie is you can't put it into words because it works so fantastically as cinema and could only work as cinema Mm -hmm. so i don't know i i liked it a lot uh, what did you like about it? Because obviously this was your pick. Yeah, I love this movie. I'm so glad that you liked it. Um, there's a languorousness to it, I Ooh, think. Ooh, languor. That's a good word. Yeah, and it's it's set on St. Valentine's Day, but in Australia, that's in the summer. So it's also a perfect summer movie. Um, it kind of gets that feeling of laziness that you get somewhere after like 2 p.m. on a Sunday afternoon when it's just a little bit too hot out and you don't have anything else to do. So the rest of your day is kind of spent wondering what am I supposed to do? And then you just sort of waste it along the way. And I think the strength of this movie largely is in the mood, but also in the fact that there is a mystery at this at the heart of this film. And the movie has absolutely no interest in solving that mystery. Everything else that you learn about the disappearance of these young women at Hanging Rock serves to make the mystery greater and not less. And that, I think, adds to the sense of unease that I feel watching this movie, because I do feel uneasy watching it, even though it is kind of lazy and languorous in tone and in mood. But... There's also a sense of inevitability about it. And I think that might be partly because there are these shots of the titular hanging rock just sort of interspersed throughout the rest of the scenes. Hanging rock just sits there. And Peter Weir is able to make a static shot of Mm. a rock standing in the middle of the bush look so imposing and frightening, even though... Absolutely nothing is happening. This rock has been there long before any of these characters. One character even mentions that it's been there for millions of years before they arrived there. And that rock is going to be there long after they've gone, even if they never actually end up leaving the rock in the first place. And that just kind of gives me chills to think about it. Well, those shots of Hanging Rock are incredible because... and. You know, maybe this might be just like the the weird mammal brain thing where people just look for faces and things. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it looks like there's a face carved into this rock. It, it doesn't look like it's been there as a geological formation for millions of years. It looks like someone or something carved it and put it there uh, like a, uh, a group of people, uh, some sort of alien. Like what? How does it look that way? I don't know, but the way Weir shoots it, it it looks like this cyclopean structure. I and that again, it it adds to the unease because it's not just a mystery of what happened to these girls. It's also a mystery of what is this rock? Like what what is this place and what is it what effect does it have on people? Because multiple times over the course of the film uh, an individual will be, you know, climbing on the rock, and they will just kind of lose it for for no discernible reason. They 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 start crawling on the ground. They they kind of freak out and start screaming, mm-hmm. and it's not clear why. Weir never explains why. He never even 
attempts to explain why. There's no rational explanation. It just sort of happens. And I don't know, it, it feels a little Lovecraftian in that sense. Like mm. there, there's there's the sense in which something cosmic or supernatural is involved here, but Weir doesn't isn't telling, maybe probably because Weir doesn't have any ideas about it either, but he's going to show it to you and just sort of let that sense of unease and awe that you get in the in the face of the transcendent and ex- inexplicable mm-hmm. just sort of that's a really powerful brew and he just, he doesn't feel the need to elaborate on it all he's just going to serve it up to the audience and let it have its effect and we're not even privy to any of the supernatural pieces either like we watch other characters go through it i think you hear sort of a heartbeat sound at a couple of points when characters are climbing on and around the rock but again it's never explained we don't get to know what happened. We don't get to understand what happened in these characters' heads. We just get to watch them go through that and then wonder, well, why did they go through that? Why did they think that? Why did they do that? Why did they just up and disappear? Um, Yeah, I just... It's done so delicately, too, because I think that this story could have been done with a very heavy hand telling us exactly how we're supposed to think and feel. And Peter Weir doesn't do that either. Kind of like how he presents the rock just in the frames of the movie. He also just presents this story to the audience and allows us to draw our own conclusions. And I think part of the crucial, um, one of the crucial ways that he does that is he sort of cuts away to people who live around the area occasionally and just lets them sort of speculate about what's going on. Without answering that question either. So the constable and his wife sort of talk with each other a little bit about, oh, there are these girls who disappeared. We're going to go out and look for them. There's a um, horse boy stable driver. I I don't really know what his job necessarily would have been, but he's a recurring character throughout the movie. And he sort of speculates as well that like, well, if nobody else, if the bloodhounds couldn't find these girls, nobody's going to be able to find them. And I think listening to just the multiplicity of voices around this disaster and listening to all of them try to make sense of it and coming up short made me feel like if I were in the situation, I also wouldn't be able to make sense of it. So why even try? Why not just enjoy them? Enjoy is a weird word to use for it, but enjoy the mood and the tone of this story and just sort of revel in being able to wonder about it. I'm really interested in your thoughts on this film's portrait of femininity. Mm -hmm. Because, and the reason I bring that up at this point is I think that's a big ingredient in what Weir is up to and sort of building this atmosphere and not not trying to explain anything possibly because he can't so just like the these characters you know are confronted with the mystery of these hanging rock disappearances and don't really know what to do with it but they can't stop themselves from from thinking about it and obsessing over it Mm -hmm. that's mirrored by the way that the the girls at this all girls school are sort of taken uh, like their 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 femininity is sort of taken by society as something that it's it's not clear what needs to happen with it but it needs to be something needs to be done with it something needs to be done with these girls they need to be taught to sit up straight they need to have all of these different classes um they need to be brought into line in a certain way and what that certain way is never articulated probably because the headmistress of this school can't articulate it herself the the men in the movie can't articulate it themselves uh there's a scene where uh these two young men kind of are eavesdropping on these on the girls and they're sort of discussing about how attractive they are mm-hmm. and you know it's it's you know the the usual male lustfulness but again it's it's not really the the way that they're approaching these these girls aren't as people it's almost like it's it's a mystery they want to possess they want to get to the bottom of these girls <laughs> and that for them takes on a sexual dimension but taken as a whole the movie kind of doesn't just approach it from the sexual dimension it's there's all sorts of angles about like trying to untangle 
the mystery at the heart of woman or whatever it is. I, I don't know. That's kind of my take on it. But I'm curious to know what you make of all that. Yeah, my read on it is that for a lot of these characters, femininity is something that needs to be tamed and brought into line. So Mrs. Appleyard, the schoolmistress in particular, is very um, – buttoned up her hair is almost always perfect and the moment you see one hair out of place you know that there is something deeply wrong with her and with her mental state um and i think peter weir does a good job of portraying that that desire to take something wild and shape it and tame it into something that can be captured and controlled just with the way that he films this college for girls there's a lot of very strong straight lines i think the first time we see um, an interior shot of Mr. Mrs. Appleyard. She's walking down some stairs and there are some very like strong lines from the staircase that are pointing up towards her as though you're trying to focus or force these young women into something that is like higher than themselves or like a, a higher standard or something like that. They are all young women who are supposed to be able to enter society. Some of them may not necessarily have attained that class yet, but they're hoping to do that through their education here. And I think by juxtaposing these young women on their picnic next to Hanging Rock, Peter Weir is saying that this is something that you can try to do, but you're never going to be able to fully tame it. Because like nature, these women aren't fully tameable. Mrs. Appleyard tells them as they're going to the picnic that once they pass through the town, they can take off their gloves and then... At the picnic, a few of the girls start to take off more and more clothing, especially as they get higher and higher up on the rock. There's this great shot where one of them removes her stockings, and it's not filmed in a sexual way. The focus is on her hands removing the stockings. You don't even linger on her leg or anything like that. But it's abundantly clear that these young women are being fully constricted by their clothing, by the expectations of society on them, and by what they are expected to do and to know and to be, they can't uphold that standard. And so they're going to just reject it completely. They're going to take off their stockings, their shoes, their hair is going to fly free, and they're just going to disappear. Because in this society that has been built for them, there's no place for them because it has to be tamed. Um at least that's kind of what I, I think he's talking about there. There's some really good angelic imagery that we can get into as well. Well, and and multiple times uh, in the film, one of the uh, one of the female instructors at this college uh, refers to Miranda, one of the missing girls, as a Botticelli angel. Yes. So that's obviously very much. It's not just a, a male female thing or a patriarchy thing. It's just, or well, it might be a patriarchy thing, <laughs> but it's it's not just it's not just uh, these women are being forced into these um strictures by men it's sort of just it's just kind of in the air mm -hmm. and i but i think one of the interesting tensions of this film is that it that uh observation doesn't take the form of a strong critique sort of a you know these these disappeared girls are sort of breaking free of society like you go girl like that kind of thing it's more mm -hmm. like there's this the way that Weir has these cross dissolves where Miranda is sort of looking up at the sky and then uh, we dissolve between that and another girl dancing and mm -hmm. it's all very impressionistic. And it's it's definitely – it's intended to kind of build up these girls as some sort of – there's some there's something mystical or mysterious going on there. Mm -hmm. uh, Weir obviously doesn't go any farther than making that observation, but it's not simply – He's, he's not interested in making a societal critique. There's something else going on here. And I think that's what makes the film so beguiling is what is that something else? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> it's, it's sub it's subrational. It's difficult to articulate. And that's maybe why I want to keep watching this movie over and over again. Is I, want to, I want to get to the bottom of it just like the characters want to get to the bottom of the disappearance. I think that way it might lie madness because I'm not <laughs> sure you're ever going to fully get to the bottom of it. But if I may offer maybe a, a clue or a hint as to where I think this movie is going with it, it's not a binary man versus woman patriarchy question. It's much more complex than that. And I think the movie is a lot stronger for that because mm -hmm, most of the people upholding that standard for these women are women themselves, like Mrs. Appleyard and the other teachers in the school. At one point, one of the schoolgirls who's named Sarah, um, who slouches and isn't willing to memorize her poetry, she is 
tied up to a board in a barn in order to correct her posture. And another female teacher did this to her to try to force her into whatever image of lady-likeness she is supposed to be embodying, and she's unwilling to do it. I kind of want to get back to that Botticelli uh, image, though, because there is a repeated image of Botticelli's Venus. I don't know how often you saw it, and I'm kind of curious to know like, if you, if you pinged it with the angel imagery or if you saw it in other places around the movie, because I think there are a few other locations that are really interesting. I mean, here, here's where I get a little shamefaced and admit that I'm my uh, fine art education is spotty. I can sometimes catch like the, the real obvious illusions, but uh, I did not pick out any specific visual quotations about Botticelli specifically, so uh, feel free to enlighten me. So something to look out for the next time you watch this movie, because it does reward repeat viewings, is um, so Botticelli's The Birth of Venus is Venus coming out of the ocean on top of a clamshell. Okay. You yeah. see a little bit, like, kind of an excerpt of that painting in one of the books that one of the girls is reading at the base of Hanging Rock. But that image is quoted in a couple of other places, too. One is of Tom's daydream of Miranda. He, I think he's in the garden at his family's estate, and he looks up, and Miranda is in kind of a dark hollow underneath some bushes. It's a great shot. It's a wonderful shot. She's standing so that a, an empty clamshell in the foreground looks like it's right underneath her feet, and she's turning around, and then she turns back and disappears into the darkness. The other place where that image shows up is on Albert, the stable boy who has a tattoo of Botticelli's Venus on one of his forearms. Oh yeah, I didn't I didn't pick up on that at all. Yeah, it's great a great catch. shot and it's it's something that I think kind of adds another additional layer to that mystery because Albert has a connection to one of the girls from the school that we don't learn about until much later in the film. He explicitly says that he was in a foster home with his sister Sarah and then he never saw her again and it turns out that Sarah is just at this college just a few miles away from him. And the movie doesn't explain that. It doesn't explain the imagery on his forearms. It just lets you sit in that missed connection of these two people who have been forcibly separated from each other. We don't know the circumstances, but she is also one of these young women who cannot be fully tamed by the school. And if she had been, maybe she and her brother would have been reunited, but I think something would have been lost along the way as well. I think one reason why this film is so compelling to me is that it's so good at evoking the feeling that there is a lar- there is a higher power go- <laughs> present in this film. What the exact nature of that higher power is, is open to interpretation, but it definitely plays into the the human appetite for for meaning for knowing that we are created beings that the, that we're not the highest being in the universe and that's explicitly called out in the dialogue uh, multiple times uh, we you know we we see Miranda and then flash back to her saying everything begins and ends at exactly the right time and place mm-hmm. uh, her one of the other disappeared girls uh, mentions just before the disappearance that she's looking down at the other the other girls from their vantage point on the rock. And, and she says, they, they don't look like they have any purpose or they look like they're, I I don't remember the exact quote, but it's something along the lines of there. It looks like they're fulfilling some purpose unknown to themselves. Mm -hmm. And that quality of this film, the fact that there's something going on here, something there, there's some design to these disappearances. Something actually happened. It wasn't random. But there's no way for us to know what the actual design behind these events is. Mm-hmm. That's what's so intriguing. You want to keep pulling at that thread the same way that, uh, you know, we as Christians, like we're constantly looking for God. Like there's if we, if we don't see him physically, we can look for him in the world around us. And I think that this is a film that kind of keys into that appetite, at least for me. Especially the the eagerness to look for patterns in something like like seeing the face in hanging rock exactly yes (laughs) it's like seeing the the virgin mary in a piece of toast or something it's 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 there it's yeah it's there there's something there and we can't fully explain it and that's what i love about picnic at hanging rock oh that's what i love about it too i'm going to rewatch it i am going to rewatch it thank you for uh bringing it to my attention and now i feel like i can 
go back and rewatch some Sofia Coppola movies and also go like, oh, I see what she's doing now. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, listeners, that is our review of Picnic at Hanging Rock. Obviously, a real barn burner of a movie. If you've not had a chance to see it, uh, fix that immediately. It is streaming on HBO Max. Uh, it's definitely worth two hours of your time. Uh, next week, we are going to move away from the ethereal and much more into the the grim world of nature, red in tooth and claw. The visceral. The visceral, shall we say. Uh, my, I'm going to pick for next week's watchful segment, Werner Herzog's 2005 documentary, Grizzly Man. So Ron Sturry, if you're still listening, we're getting some documentaries up, <laughs> up in here. Um, and we're going to be pairing that with a little movie in which Idris Elba punches a ravening lion beast. So you I'm know, looking forward to it. I'll watch I, Idris Elba punch a lion. I'll watch Idris Elba do just about anything, but punching a lion sounds like an exceptionally good use of his time. So yeah, that'll be a pairing for the ages. Looking forward to that one. (laughs) But for now, that is our show. Seeing and Believing is brought to you by the Christ and Pop Culture Podcast Network. Our producer is Jonathan Clausen, who every week helps us to search for the sacred on screen. I'm your host, Kevin McLenathan. I'm your co-host, Sarah Welch-Larson. And we'll see you next week on Seeing and Believing. You have been listening to Seeing and Believing, an official production of the Christ and Pop Culture Podcast Network. Please rate and review the show in iTunes and check out our other shows at christandpopculture.com slash network. Theme music by Alexander Osborne and Lindsay Miz, used under Creative Commons License 3.0.